Hi, and welcome to Reasonable Necessary, Australia's period podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. George Tullaforis, and today we're talking about how you can protect your plan from fraud and budget providers. I'll be joined by Disability Ally, Peter Gregory, as well as senior staff from the National Disability Insurance Agency and from the NDIS Quality and Safeguarding Commission. Check it out. Hi, Peter Mark. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let's start by hearing who you are and... Uh, what are you doing there well? Thanks, George. Uh, my name's Matt Barr. I'm the Director Compliance and NDIS Worker Screening at the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission. Um, so my role in, involves um, supporting compliance policy and strategy across the full range of the Commission's functions, including as they relate uh, to fraud um, and other practices that may be non-compliant um, with obligations under the Act. Right. Welcome. Bruce. Yeah, thanks, George. My name is uh, Bruce Graydon. I'm the acting director of the, uh, well, the new Fraud Fusion Task Force and the investigations within the NDIA. Um, so that means we've got in investigative ca- capability across Australia and, and I currently manage um, that capacity. Wow, that's a great lineup for our viewers today. Now, before we go any further... Let's take a listen to an earlier conversation that I had with Peter Gregory, just to get a feel of some of the dodgy provider behaviour that he he, uh, talked to me about earlier in the week. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show. Hey, George. How are you going? Great to have you. Can you tell us some of the most common and concerning practices that you've encountered? Yeah, so when people are talking about supports coordinators, for example, they're talking about um, those practices where the supports coordinator makes charges, but they're unable to get a clear understanding of what the supports coordinator actually did. Or a or practices where it appears as though the supports coordinator is making regular charges without any evidence that they've actually done any work. And as you know, the the beauty about the supports coordination role is that they're there to assist you to identify suitable providers, to help you connect, to help you negotiate the service agreements, um, and where people are reporting challenges, it's in the area of charges being made without that work being done, without those connections being made. And there's um, lots of concerns around allied health practitioners and assessments as well, don't you? Yeah, yep. So um, one of the big areas, I think, for people is that they report engaging allied health practitioners to prepare a report, particularly for a plan review, or um, to 
enable them to implement some more sophisticated support strategies and that the allied health practitioner will either not produce the report or produce a report that is inadequate to their needs and then say in order to adjust or modify that report uh, will need uh, additional payment. So it's a situation where people feel compelled to keep on paying out money for more and more information when at the outset they'd already said I need a report for this purpose and um, we're agreeing on an amount of money to do that. And what about the area of SDI and, and Phil? Well, I think we've seen a real escalation in some dodgy practices around SDA. I think we've seen a real escalation in um, providers who've got no experience in specialist disability accommodation coming in, building group homes on spec and then entering into arrangements with some SIL providers, supported independent living providers, to fill the vacancies. And, and when, you're, when you're building group homes on spec with the objective to filling vacancies, inevitably you're going to lead to people being placed into forced co-tenancies. And we know historically that means that when people are in forced co-tenancies, that will inevitably move towards abuse, neglect, domestic violence. It's, it's, it's just the equation. So I think um, those sorts of practices are really questionable. The other associated practice that's questionable is where the SDA provider uh, is the landlord, um, but they have another arm of the company that's also the service provider. Or if it's not SDA, the the landlord is the service provider. So if you enter into conflict with the service provider, um, you can be evicted. So I think you know those practices where you don't have a separation between landlord and provider really expose people to significant risk. Well, guys, what are the reflections on? what Peter had to say. I'll start, start with you, Matt. Thanks, George. And um, thank you to Peter mm. um, for raising some really important issues. A couple of matters came um, directly to mind in the examples that that, um, that Peter raised. And the, and the first one was really around the importance of participants um, understanding and exercising their rights as consumers, mm. as well as NDIS uh, participants. So what I mean in terms of as consumers, everybody um, has the rights has rights under consumer guarantees under Australian consumer law, um, including that products um, are of quality and that services um, fit the, um, the stated purpose. Um, and it's really important that participants under, um, are aware of and exercise those rights, just as they would in, in engaging or purchasing any other product or service yeah. for any other purpose. The other part of that is um, rights as NDIS participants. So under, under the NDIS Code of Conduct um, and other 
um, obligations that the Commission regulates. Um, participants um, have the right to engage supports and services that are delivered in a quality, in a safe manner with care and skill, and for which support um, them in um, meeting their mm. needs and goals under their NDIS plan. Mm. The other example, the, the examples also raise for me um, the importance around service agreements and ensuring that participants have service agreements in place with the providers that engage and service agreements that meet the needs and goals of participants. So it's important that in having discussions with prospective providers, participants are putting that forward in how those service agreements are designed and then executed. Um, it's important in those agreements that they cover um, the, the supports that will be provided, what they will cost so that participants can make decisions around whether they are affordable and aligned with and aligned with their NDIS plan, um, what you and the provider are responsible for. So Peter raised the example of behaviour support plans. It's in, if, if you're engaging a service agreement to, um, to do, for the development of a behaviour support plan, you might look to include um, um, matters in that plan in, in that agreement in ensuring that that plan meets your needs and goals, is informed by evidence-informed practice, and meets the requirements um, of state of uh, consent requirements and authorization requirements of the relevant states and territories, and requirements of the Commission mm. in relation to those plans. Um, including um, service agreements encourage you to ensure that um, the agreement states how long that plan goes for, how it may be ended or ceased, and how you might deal with any disagreement um, under that, that service agreement. The examples um, also um, raise for me the importance of providers ensuring that participants are aware of how they manage conflicts of interest, particularly in that scenario where providers, a, a single provider is delivering um, specialist disability accommodation mm. and, and supported independent living. It's important that providers are complying with their obligations in respect of that particular scenario and ensuring that uh, participants um, do not suffer any or do not experience any adverse consequence relating um, to a decision about what services they engage within that particular accommodation setting. Uh, I want to go back to the issue that you raised. I often say to people, like, the service agreement is the most important thing yeah. that you can have because um, even though they're a hassle, mm. <laughs> they're really helpful because you can negotiate mm. things. Like, I, I get service agreements that say, we need to see your plan. We need you to pay within 24 hours. I'm like, hang on a minute. No, 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 no. I'm not doing either of those things. And if you want my business, let's work on this agreement together. Because ultimately, it's something that, it's my, my uh, plan funding. You know, I should be able to decide the terms as, as well, if not more so than the, the provider, exactly. right? Do you want to say something there, Vince? Oh, Well, you were uh, taking the words out of my mouth a little bit there, George, and uh, because when the investigator in me, there's a couple of things in, in Peter's examples that 
um, lit a bit of a fire in me. And, and they're around uh, the fact that we all have to be vigilant, right? So my, my takeaway from Peter's comments was, look, I'd really encourage participants to be two things, really clever with their plan and really brave. And what I mean by that is you almost have to have uh, a plan about your plan when you go into this. So, you know, choose your provider wisely. Peter spoke about being sure that um, uh, because providers are a little bit, their business is to provide services to participants, but they're, they're in a competitive market, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But they will all, um, they will all, like a salesman, tell you why their service is best for you. And there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, the onus, I guess, is on our participants to be a bit vigilant and do some um, some background checks. See, George, when you were talking before, it's obvious that you've got no problem having difficult conversations. If you need to, you'll dig in, right? Others um, find that difficult. So I think going back to having a plan about your plan, I think it's important for our participants to encourage them to have an honest conversation with themselves about are they the type of people that need somebody else in their life to turn to as a trusted ally to go to when they need to have a difficult conversation with the provider, say? Another thought uh, that talked about was kind of what I called dumbness. Mm. Yeah, so it's like... You know, oh, look, I, I asked for this and I got something that doesn't feel like it's good value. And in fact, I'm feeling a bit mm. ripped off, right? Now, we've got a term for that. I think we call that um, sharp practices mm-hmm. in the sense that it's, it's not fraud, right? Because there's a difference between doing something to it dodgy and being fraudulent. Is that right? Yeah, look, if I could jump in there, Matt, I, I think, oh, there's an argument that's, that sharp practice is fraud, but I'll tell you the difference is the difference is... And, and debate it with yeah. me because I'm putting it out there as, an, as, as really a, an idea. I, I might be wrong. Is it all well, fraud? It, from an investigative point of view, a fraud is committed when someone forms the intent that they're going to do the wrong thing, right? When If they are, are sloppy in their business practices, that might come under sharp practice. Uh, but if they form an intent that they are going to charge more than what they should be getting, that's fraud. Now, intent is really difficult to prove because it's a state of mind uh, and therefore can only be proved through a, a proven set of facts. And we might gather those facts by take, talking to witnesses and taking statements and having participants, a, a range of participants telling us that, well, we got charged for uh, four hours of ha- house and yard maintenance, but we only ever got an hour. Or I got charged for uh, house and yard maintenance, but I live in a unit complex, so I don't have a yard. So that's how we might gather the evidence to prove sharp practice. Now, when it's low level, we might treat that initially with um, a shot across their bow, cut it out, because this is, you know, this is will not be tolerated. But 
as often happens, it can it can turn into something greater. And again, this goes back, George, to what I was saying earlier. We need our participants to have those difficult conversations to stop providers, to pull them up, right? So that's why we have to be brave. But the problem quite me, um, I read it, um, the NDA data said that it's over $50 million of incorrect payments. Is that? That's a lot of money. It's an awful lot of money. Uh, and there's a lot happening in that space uh, right now, and I'm sure we'll get to that, to to combat that. Um, the other point that I, I'd make, George, is just to keep this in context. Um, you know, I reckon you can categorise the people that are in the industry. There's three different categories. You've got honest people, honest providers, honest participants, with no intent to do anything wrong. And that is the vast majority of people in the industry. And then right down the other end of the scale, you've got organised criminal entities that enter the scheme with one intent, and that's to rip it off. Now, they're they're at the the tiny minority, the tiny minority, but they do a lot of damage. And then talking about sharp practice, we've got this group in the middle, if you like, who... uh, may start out doing everything perfectly and then for reasons that we don't see, they start to slide. They might they might be experiencing some financial difficulties with their business and they think they see it as a short term solution. But for whatever reason they start charging for four hours when they should be charging for two or and and, and it gets away in them. Um, but yeah it's it's a lot of money, George, that's for sure. I'd like to talk about that issue of um, uh, people claiming hours that weren't provided. Um, one of the really simple solutions in my head is that we need to make sure that participants sign off hmm. on, you know, invoices. It, it concerns me that that uh, people who are agency managed can essentially have their, well... <laughs> a significant amount of their funding um, rated because they can't, they don't have to approve the payment. Mm. Isn't that a systemic issue that could be relatively quickly addressed? Uh, yes and yes. So uh, it is it is an issue and it's an issue that we're addressing uh, through the introduction of a, a new program this new PACE system is going to address just that. So whilst it hasn't been introduced yet, I think the I've got a feeling that the trial is starting, it either has just started or it's starting very soon. Excellent. I'm looking forward mm. to that. Long overdue. Um, <laughs> and recently the government announced this task force that you're the acting director of, as I understand, Tell us a bit more about that. Um, well, I think there's been a recognition from the government that we've got to do something. And I liked what Dylan Alcott uh, said the other day, that the people that are committing fraud against this scheme are literally taking away um, from a, a neurodiverse kid from getting care or from someone with a high-level disability having a shower. It's as simple as that. So those people that are committing fraud on the scheme there are real people, real victims behind that. Um, that doesn't, and that doesn't even factor in 
the families of those victims, and and the and we see this, we see uh, family breakdown. We we have I can think of instances of parents uh, in tears because they thought that they had mismanaged their child's plan, and they they weren't aware that they were a victim of fraud. So, you know that that I think that's a real, um, you know. As I said, historically, I think it's a bit dry. Everyone thinks, oh, it's just a fraud against the taxpayer. Nah, not this. These are real people at real risk. So the government has quite rightly um, committed quite a lot of money. What happens if you're a a, a victim of fraud in this case? I'm thinking that... um, that people get their funding reinstated. Yep. Um, what 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 does the agency do to support people through that? Because it would be very very difficult oh, to rely on funding, and it's no longer there. It's horrendously difficult. But we've got a we've got or the agency's got dedicated staff that um, are focused on um, the participants plans and wherever necessary we reinstate the funds into those plans so we won't let people go without services um it's really important it's super important um that's what that's why this the scheme exists right so in 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 those circumstances where we've identified fraud uh we will we'll top those plans up to make sure people get the services that they need how do people realise that they suddenly um, find that they that they go on the portal, the portal, and the funding's not there? Um, does the the provider disappear from thin air? Um, how, how does how do some of these cases end up being identified? Well, it's. A- You'd be surprised, George, how often we will um, go knocking on a door because we're investigating something and a participant doesn't know uh, that they've been defrauded. So sometimes, and there's lots of instances where participants go to organise um, an activity and there's no money in their plan. And and again, this is this is all about being vigilant. You know, this is why I, I, I'd love to see. Uh, us change the mindset of the way we view our plans. Um, you know, I get the, the analogy I use sometimes is that I'd like participants to think about their plan. Let's call it 100000 I'd like them to think about that money being in cash sitting at their front door, behind their closed front door. Now, I can't think of a a human being, a human on the planet that would not keep a close eye on 100000 in cash. And yet essentially that's what participants sometimes, I'm speaking generally, we're not vigilant enough, right? Now, the money's there, it's behind a locked door, but that doesn't stop bad people from trying to get to it. And I'd like our participants to start thinking about their plans like that. They've got to keep an eye on it. They've got to be vigilant. They've got to speak up. So... Absolutely. Um, like your commission is set up to ensure quality and, and, and safety and to regulate um, the, the industry. And people obviously who are receiving services that 
that I similar to what Peter uh, talked about. That, that ain't quality, is it? That's something very different. And um, what do you do? What, what powers have you got to, you know, get, get things get things right for people? Yeah, George, um, as the as the regulator in in the sector, um, we have a, a broad range of um, of compliance and enforcement actions that are available to the commission um, to not only um, penalise, address, correct non-compliance, but also influence a broader uplift in quality and safeguarding across the across the NDIS market. Um, we, we do receive a lot of complaints around dodgy practices, sharp practice, which mm. goes to unethical um, conduct, mistreatment um, of participants and their plans, um, conduct like coercion to engage particular um, ser uh, services, um, as well as um, not acknowledging the privacy of participants in sharing information about them with other providers and not acknowledging um, the, uh, their their authority around how funds under their plans are, are spent, which is obviously of concern um, to the Commission and obviously um, to the NDIA. So where we do identify that practice, if a participant does make a complaint to the Commission, the Commission will talk to them around, um, around the issues to understand what those issues are. Um, the Commission will ask for consent and discuss options around resolution of their complaint, which may also include, um, with participants' consent, engagement with the agency around matters of misuse of participant funds um, or, and or fraud um, against the scheme and their plans. Um, and we'll also uh, t tell participants about what we did about their complaint, um, the action that we took and the outcome from that action. That action may include um, as, I, as I mentioned, that broad range of compliance enforcement um, uh, tools available to us. Um, and that's, that goes from education um, in building the capability and understanding of providers in terms of their obligations um, across particularly the NDIS Code of Conduct, which applies to all NDIS providers, regardless of whether they're registered or unregistered, um, through to issuing warning letters requesting that corrective action be taken to address that non-compliance. Mm. We then have tools available um, to require correction of, of conduct, including what are called compliance notices, which attract a penalty if a provider fails to comply with that compliance notice. We have the um, ability to um, enter into enforceable undertakings um, with providers and individuals um, to address um, non-compliance identified. And then we have um, the ability to seek pe um, penalties. So whether that's through an infringement notice that the commission can issue, which attracts a, a monetary penalty of just over 13,000 for a body corporate, through to seeking civil penalties from a court, um, which can range up over the, over the $200,000 mark in terms of a maximum penalty. We also then have the ability to restrict or prohibit providers and individuals um, from engaging in specified activities or being engaged um, or being involved in the provision of supports or services um, full stop to people with disability. And that's through the making of banning orders 
and then decisions on the registration of providers such as suspension and and revocation of their mm. registration in terms of suspension and, and revocation the effect of those decisions is that those providers can no longer deliver services as a registered provider mm. meaning they are unable to provide supports and services to participants who are managed by the NDIA um, as well as deliver certain supports and services for which registration is mandatory and that includes um, specialist disability accommodation uh, behavior support and any class of support that involves the um, the, uh, the use of regulated restrictive practices so we have quite a broad range of actions which are administrative as well as court um, um, determined decisions which all go to addressing mitigating risk for participants out of the conduct mm. that we're identifying. And so are, are you deregistering providers who are, who are behaving this way? So through the registration um, process, uh, there's obviously a, there's an there's, there's a number of assessments that are undertaken, um, one of which is assessment against the practice standards that apply dependent on the classes of support that a provider seek to be registered for. And in addition, a suitability assessment in terms of the provider and their key personnel, which includes a range of considerations, such as whether um, a key personnel has been found, uh, had, had adverse findings made against them, um, either within the context of the NDIS or elsewhere. And those activities are really important to identifying providers of concern for which we may make a decision to refuse their registration and in the first quarter of this financial year we've already refused 161 providers registration um, for a variety of reasons including on suitability mm. grounds mm. do you think that some of those i mean that's good that you're doing that i'm just wondering do you think that some of these uh, uh, providers are now operating as unregistered providers, do you know, is there a way of tracking them down? Because clearly, that's we don't want that, right? We we want we want them out of the out of the system entirely. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of unregistered um, providers, what I would encourage participants to do, and particularly participants um, who are self or who are self plan managing, um, that they can ask their provider and their workers that they engage to be screened and that's in terms of ndis worker screening um, that that means that they those people have undertake have, have undergone a screening process to assess whether based on information available including criminal history records whether they present an unacceptable risk to the safety and well-being of people with disability so that's a really important safeguard that's and really important yeah and also i always think of i think people often think of NDIS worker screening as the support worker, but I know that I'm, you know, as a member of a board of, the, of, of a disability provider, I have to be mm. screened as well. So you can ask the CEO mm. for their worker screening, yeah? Yeah, that's, that's right. So participants, there's information on our website that participants can access around how uh, they can verify the clearance status of, of workers who they engage. 
um, and they can access the worker screening database to undertake that verification. For agency managed participants, all registered NDIS providers must ensure that all workers in particular roles, called risk assessed roles, which includes board members and those in control or ownership of entities, uh, have an NDIS worker screening clearance. If, a if any participants have concerns over uh, the providers they engage in terms of their compliance with those obligations, they can make a complaint to the NDIS Commission and we'll assess that accordingly. Because the Commission and the NDIA work closely together. As, as I said earlier, a lot of our matters are, are pretty complex and they, in they include a lot of them, a thing we call phoenixing. And that means um, organisations run by criminal entities who have a number of uh, shelf companies, if you like, just set up, ready to go, lying dormant. And when uh, when we or the Commission take action against the original business, they just shut the doors on it and walk away. And they take all the, all the participants, they phoenix them over into a new organisation and the offending continues. So the Commission and the NDIA work very closely together to try to keep in front of that. And that's what uh, I think is important about sort of what's now is the new Fraud Fusion Task Force, the fact that we're going to be dealing with 15, 15 different agencies essentially uh, with a common purpose. I think that's really exciting. And Bruce, just to pick up on, on, on those points, um, an example um, where the Commission and, and the agency will work collectively around this is where um, fraud is identified, we will look at the people involved, linkages to other NDIS providers. We'll look at the business model and practices mm. and identify where that practice may be replicated elsewhere. We will conduct proactive investigation and compliance monitoring activity to further mitigate risk, um, particularly around Phoenix mm. activity, re-establishment of entities, um, as well uh, as um, identifying where participant details may be shared without their consent authorization for the purposes of continuing that fraud against their plans yep. and, and the yep. scheme. And the commission uh, can take a range of preventative actions. So I mentioned before uh, banning orders, um, which can prohibit or restrict a person or, a, or an entity from engaging in particular activity. And we do have the ability to under, to, um, to make banning orders in circumstances where a person um, hasn't um, engaged in the scheme as a preventative measure um, to mitigate the risk of non-compliance by that individual um, in the NDIS market. And that is a tool that we are using uh, in accordance with, in addition to our registration um, levers that we can also use to mitigate future risk of, of fraud and other uh, sharp practices. Mm. Now, I think there are probably some people who are listening and watching in there. They're thinking, oh, you know, this doesn't feel right in terms of something that they're experiencing with a provider. They, they want to they wanna do something about it. They're afraid. Because mm. it's quite... It, you know, I think it's quite scary to um, uh, make a complaint about a service when you depend on 
yeah. that service or that service knows where you live. Um, what, what would you say to those people who are, who are listening with those concerns? In terms of um, in terms of talking to to the commission, um, as as I mentioned earlier around raising a complaint with the commission, I understand it it, it can be um, a really difficult step to take in in making a complaint to the commission. Uh, your your details will be um, confidential unless you provide that consent to the commission uh, to sh to share um, the details of your complaint um, with another party. But raising that, that complaint with the Commission or providing that information to the NDIA's fraud reporting um, contact line as well as mm. email is really important because it may assist the Commission and the agency in identifying a course of concerning conduct for which we may address uh, proactively um, out of assessment of that yeah. information. You can also have conversations and we encourage participants to have conversations if they're plan managed with their plan managers to get an understanding from plan managers around what they are doing to ensure that your funds are being spent the way that you want them to be spent. Um, and, and that in addition to what we mentioned earlier around keeping um, records and being, um, um, Bruce used the word vigilant mm. around your plan is really important to informing any discussion you might have with the commission, with the agency, or if you, um, or if you're going to, if you're having a conversation with your provider, with your provider, to ensure that you're, you can evidence and document the services that you have received, mm. what you should have received, and those claims that you're concerned mm. about in terms of whether services were provided appropriately. How are we going to make sure that the provider doesn't? This has happened, sadly, this has happened, but, but George, I really want to point out this is very, very rare. Um, but in circumstances where it does happen, we engage uh, the local law enforcement. We, we'll do whatever we need to do to make sure that uh, a participant is safe. Um, it goes back, George, to what I spoke about originally about being brave. You know, we, we need participants to speak up. Um, and we need them, but they need to do that in the knowledge that we will protect them wherever we can. And by that, I mean that if they were to be harassed uh, or in any danger whatsoever, um, they can report that to either us or to the local police. And if it comes to us, to be honest with you, we will we'll in, we'll put measures in place to ensure that a participant is safe. Now, I want to, if it's okay, George, I want to talk about reporting things into um, into the agency, into the NDIA, uh, because I think it's an area that we can do better, to be honest with you. I, I don't want to comment too broadly um, because I know there's a lot of work happening in this space and, and, and perhaps that some of that's already being put in place. But historically, uh, people would report things uh, to the fraud reporting hotline. Um, at some point, at a later date, our investigators will go and meet with them or go and make contact with them, and they are often shocked to hear from us because once they've reported it, there's just a vacuum. Now, that's the that's a bit there that we we need to be better. We need to improve that. Um, 
but it's a really difficult balance, George, um, because we, as from an investigative point of view, it's really important that we don't telegraph our punch and let um, a fraudulent provider know that we're looking into their practices. Because, as you can imagine, if if we said to, if we got, uh, if we took receipt of a complaint, and we got on the phone and said. Thanks a lot for this. Uh, I've got a team of investigators that are looking into it. You can expect some action soon. That's really juicy information. And it'd be hard for most people to keep a lid on that. And the risk here is if if the wrong people find out that we're coming, a lot of bad things can happen like the destruction of evidence. So it means that we don't get what we need to convict someone. And like the... the uh, threats and intimidation of witnesses or participants. So, um, but I, I respect there needs to be a balance of what we're doing on. But if if there's any participants out there thinking, oh, well, I reported something and I haven't heard anything, please don't assume that nothing's happening because that's not the case. That's yeah. amazing for that. Now, I did ask Peter for some of his uh, suggestions around what to do to uh, essentially avoid uh, having to deal with dodgy providers. And here's a few things that he had to say. This question of entering into agreements with providers comes up a lot. And I like to think about the process of evaluating the providers as something like a due diligence. So the first thing that uh, we would ne- normally do is go online and have a look at their website. And um, you can get an impression of the sophistication of this provider by the website. For example, um, if they have a website that is chock full of stock photographs, Um, and they haven't even taken off the the watermarks, you have to say to yourself, if they can't even get the the presentation of their organisation right online, then how sophisticated are they going to be in meeting my needs? That's one. The other is, um, how do you contact this provider um, if they've got a mobile number and that's the only contact point? I say, well, that looks as well like a provider who doesn't have uh, a significant resource base behind them. So are they the sort of provider who has the sophistication that I need? Um, On that website, are they saying who are the key people associated with this organisation? Seems to me that if a provider is unwilling to identify who the key people in the organisation are, then you have to be questioning whether they have something to hide. Um, If you... I I like to check out the address of that provider and then use Google Earth or Google Maps to try and find out where they are. And some of my personal favourites are providers who have addresses that looks like a warehouse in some industrial complex somewhere, 
or or um, another personal favourite is the um, the suburban house in a really ritzy neighbourhood, and it's really really huge, um, with no real indication that this is a bona fide entity. So all the, you know, these people may be legitimate, but what I'm saying is that as you begin to unpack these superficial um, questions, you begin to be asking questions about the level of sophistication. I like to um, do an ABN check to see uh, what's the, the history of this organisation um, how many business names have preceded the one that they're using now and who are the proprietors of that business and whether those proprietors have any demonstrated experience in the disability area or um, one of my, again, personal favourites is have they, have, a, have they had associations with um, government funding activities where there's been dodgy practice in the past, like um, association with uh, childcare, is is been has been historically one of those areas where people have got into to make a lot of money, um, and have they chopped and changed around from one business activity to another? That's not really related to disability, but it looks as though this has been opportunistic. Um, and also within my networks, I'll be asking privately, have you come across this individual? Um, have you come across this business? Uh, what history can we put together about this business? So those sorts of things give us a bit of an indication of um, whether or not we're dealing with somebody who has some history and some competence to deliver the services that they say they're going to deliver. I think the, the, the other uh, one that's really nefarious is those providers who adopt names that imply they are either the equivalent of a government agency or some extension of the NDIA and doing that by the way in which they structure their name, the way in which they use the NDIS colours, um, the branding and that sort of stuff to, to create the illusion that they are um, in some way an, ex an extension of a government activity or the agency. If you've then decided that you're going to go ahead and interview this provider, then be very clear about what you're going to ask them to provide. Don't enter into long-term service agreements until you are clear that you want to go with that provider and um, get them to explain to you how they are going to deliver on a service that's based around what you want, not what they want to deliver. This is really important. Many providers come and say, this is the service we provide. And the conversation has to shift to what will the provider do for you to provide the service that you want. And um, then once you've done all of that, make it clear that 
um, you're happy to enter into a short-term agreement until we work out whether this is the right fit. And of course, one of the really big indicators that this is not going to work is if the provider turns up to that interview with a service agreement already prepared. So it's really a case of buyer do yep. your research, talk to other people who may or may not have uh, heard of the service or the provider, and I really appreciate you, Peter, coming on the show and uh, telling people about your experiences because hopefully that will help more people to make sure that, that they do what has to be done to stay safe in, in uh, finding a trusted and reliable NDIS provider. That's really helpful, isn't it, guys? Yeah. Any additional tips from you guys? Just a couple from, from me. Uh, participants um, may choose to engage a registered NDIS provider which may provide a level of greater assurance because those providers uh, have been assessed against the applicable standards and undergone those suitability assessments that I spoke about uh, earlier. And registered providers are also subject to ongoing oversight through quality audit processes. The, the other um, activity that, that participants may do is around, as I mentioned before, having a look at the Commission's Compliance and Enforcement Register. And these are published on our website, which identifies compliance action the Commission's taken against individuals and providers, including some information around the nature of that, that conduct. And that is really useful information to informing participants about whether or not uh, to engage that, that provider. Yeah, from my point of view, uh, participants really should make an effort to be really vigilant because we can't be the sole eyes and ears of all things fraud. We, we need, a, we need to, to adopt the ethos that we're all in this together. Oh, we totally are, and this is why I wanted to do this podcast, because I think that, um, yeah, we, as participants, we're, we're very uh, conscious of the, the importance of of keeping an eye on what's going on and um, making sure that, that money goes where it should be. Mm. Um, thanks, Bruce. Thanks for that. I know that um, people can uh, confidently come to either of your organisations. Um, mm. We're going to have phone numbers and contact details available um, on the on the description below. And um, I'm, I really appreciate your time and for sharing the important work that you do. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, George. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, George. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks, man. Um, great to be part of this fantastic conversation. Mm. Thank you. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Visual and Necessary. Thank you to our partner for this episode, the National Disability Insurance Agency. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.